Good morning. Psalm 118, verse 24, reminds us that this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And I am glad to be with you this morning. The chances, every chance that we have to meet with each other should always be treasured. For those of you who know my wife, um, you may be looking around the room, you don't see her. I want to dispel the rumor that she's outside protesting uh, my appearance this morning in speaking. That is not true. That is not true. She's merely coming to the 11 o'clock with uh, other members of my daughter's family. Uh, but in addition to being glad this morning, I'm also grateful for the opportunity to address you with a portion of scripture involving a story that many of us are familiar with. And it's a story that relates the importance of establishing boundaries and maintaining priorities. And it also reveals the necessity for God's people to display humility and unity in our interactions with one another. Please join me as we pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your word. It serves as a lamp for our feet and a light to our path. We come before you humbly, asking that our hearts and our minds would be receptive to what your Holy Spirit desires to impart. May the words that are spoken be the ones you have ordained to be shared. And may we each take something from Scripture that impacts us in a meaningful way. And if, they, if there be any here today who do not know you as Savior and Lord, may the light of your gospel shine upon them, and may you bring them graciously to salvation. And we commit this time to you and ask that you bless it in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. When I was approached about speaking today, I was instructed that I could do so on any portion of Scripture, providing it was not from Hebrews or Judges, as we had recently covered that. Uh, but given the option of selecting a passage from any of the other 64 books, my thoughts turned to Acts. The book of Acts has long been a favorite of mine in that it reads much like a history book. In school, history was my favorite subject, so it seemed like a natural fit. Acts records the events surrounding the founding of the church in Jerusalem and how the gospel then spread throughout the Roman Empire. And it details many remarkable events of faith, perseverance, and an unwavering commitment to seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ be preached. Some commentators have likened the efforts of the early Christians to that which turned the world upside down. And I believe history has proven that to be the case, considering all that has transpired over the last 2,000 years. Today's sermon is entitled, Priorities Matter. And with that being said, <clears throat> please turn to your Bibles, Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. That's Acts 6, 1 to 7. If you're using the Pew Bible, it could be found on page 1086. So Acts 6, 1 to 7. Please follow with me as we read. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, before we address these seven verses, permit me to provide a brief review of Acts chapters 1 through 5. What occurred earlier can frequently provide context to that which we seek to discuss now. Chapter 1 in Acts opens with Jesus meeting with his disciples prior to his ascension, and he instructs them not to leave Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come. And he mentions to them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even unto the ends of the earth. Jesus then ascends to his father. Matthias is selected to replace Judas Iscariot, and the group of 120 gathered and devoted themselves to prayer and were in one accord. And they are intentional and they're focused on doing all that Jesus had commanded. Chapter 2 is the wonderful story of Pentecost. The festival of harvest was being observed in Jerusalem, and that was one of three annual festivals, the others being the Festival of Unleavened Bread and the Festival of Shelters, where the men of Israel had to return to the sanctuary in the city that was designated as Israel's religious capital. And that was something God had commanded in Deuteronomy 16. So there were more people gathered in Jerusalem than what might normally have been the case. And the Holy Spirit then came upon those who had assembled in the upper room. Peter preaches powerfully to the crowd that Jesus is the Messiah, that the risen Christ could change their lives, and he exhorted them to repent and be baptized. And what followed was a tremendous response to his preaching. 3,000 new believers were added, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. And that fellowship included the breaking of bread as well as prayer. And there was discernible unity, and they had all things in common. Generosity abounded as people freely sold possessions and other belongings, and those proceeds were then given to those that had need. And it was a wonderful display of what communal living could and should be. And as a result, God added to their number each day. Chapter 3, Peter and John meet with the crippled beggar outside the gate beautiful. The beggar is healed, and the people are amazed. And that provided an opportunity for Peter to preach in the portion of the temple that was known as Solomon's portico. Chapter 4, Peter and John are now detained by the temple authorities. And there's a growing division between the religious leaders and the early followers of Jesus. The Sadducees in particular were annoyed about the proclamation that Jesus was resurrected as they did not believe in bodily resurrection. But many who did hear the apostles preaching believed and another overwhelming response as 5,000 men were added to the ranks of the believers. And the early church attracted people due to the expressions of God's power at work, as well as the generosity, sincerity, and unity of its members, and certainly the character of its leaders. And the next day, Peter and John appear before the full Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of of the religious leaders. And they give testimony that the beggar's healing came about through the power of Jesus's name, and that there is no salvation apart from Jesus. The apostles were let go with a warning, and they then prayed for continued boldness. And the people continued to have everything in common. Many who owned land and other properties sold them. And as the Bible records, they laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. People's needs continued to be met. And one such property owner was named, that being Barnabas, also known as the son of encouragement. He is the same Barnabas who accompanied Paul on the first of Paul's missionary trips. So chapter 4 is now revealing for us the first signs of persecution. Satan is using outside forces in an attempt to impede the progress of the early church. And as chapter 5 opens, we are introduced to a couple 
Ananias and Sapphira. They too sold a piece of property and gave part of the proceeds to the apostles, claiming that it was the full amount. Peter then confronts Ananias that he has lied, not just to man, but to God as well. Ananias proceeds to drop dead. Several hours later, in her attempt to continue the deception, Sapphira is also struck dead. So we see that believers are not immune to Satan's temptation. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to pass themselves off as more generous, sort of a false spirituality. And God sees and despises that hypocritical heart and spirit. So corruption and hypocrisy from within was yet another ploy put forth by Satan. And harsh action was taken against uh, them, Ananias and Sapphira, because dishonesty, greed, and covetousness are destructive in the church, all of which prevents the Holy Spirit from working effectively. In fact, verse 11 in chapter 5 tells us that fear gripped the church as the people came to see just how seriously God regards sin. And the apostles continued their work with many signs and wonders. Healings were still taking place. Verse 14, <clears throat> excuse me, tells us that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. And the apostles were then rearrested. They were thrown into prison. And an angel of the Lord came and opened the prison doors and told the apostles, continue to preach in the temple. Naturally, this continued to upset the religious leaders. So they bring the apostles before the council again, and they question them as to why they continued to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and the apostles give a reply that we must obey God rather than men. And the Sanhedrin directs that the apostles be beaten. However, facing public pressure, they release the apostles with yet another warning. And the apostles rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of Jesus. And every day, they continued to preach in the temple and from house to house. So what have we seen here, especially in chapters 4 and 5? When God's people are faithfully going about the Lord's business, you can expect to find resistance in one form or another. Satan's attempts to curtail the work of the early church by the use of persecution and corruption had failed. And the preaching of the gospel was met with opposition. And instead of checking its progress, it contributed to the success of its spreading. The more it was afflicted, the more it multiplied. And of the four basic components of elementary mathematics, we see God adding, multiplying, and subtracting, but never, never dividing. That would fall under Satan's domain. He hoped to divide and conquer by raising one group of believers against another. And as we focus on today's text, we can see the hand of Satan utilizing yet another tool in his arsenal, and that being what I would refer to as the three Ds, dissension, disunity, and distraction. And at the beginning of Acts 6, we are introduced to two groups. They were the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So who exactly are these people? Well, for one thing, they are both followers of Christ. They had come from a Jewish background, and they had accepted Jesus as their Messiah. And as we here today in, in the present day read this, we would refer to them as Christians. And yes, they certainly were. Although the first use of the term Christians does not appear until Acts 11, verse 26, when it references the believers at the church in Antioch. The Hebrews are what I would refer to as the locals, those Jews who were more inclined to embrace Jewish culture and were mostly from Judea and other parts of Palestine. They spoke Aramaic, and they held tightly to the Hebrew scriptures. 
The Hellenists, on the other hand, were Greek-speaking Jews who lived outside of Judea and, and Galilee and other parts of the Roman Empire. They were products of what is called the Diaspora, which saw the dispersion or scattering of Jews to lands that were outside of Palestine after the Babylonian captivity. And these people, the Hellenists, they relied on the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. They had come to Jerusalem, but they still professed an affinity or a natural liking with the lands that they came from. And each group retained their own culture and traditions. So there existed a natural suspicion between the two groups. The cultural and geographical factors combined to create some seeds of resentment. And some of the writings that were found in the Talmud, the Talmud was a collection of Jewish law and traditions. Some of the writings that were found there contributed to further this divide between the two. The Pharisees, for one, did not hide their disdain for the Hellenists. They kind of viewed them as second-class citizens. Simply put, the Hebrews tended to regard the Hellenists as unspiritual compromises with Greek culture, while the Hellenists considered the Hebrews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. And there was a certain friction between the two groups, and little was done to conceal it. So Satan will now try to exploit this dissension in an effort to stop the church's progress. The early church had now had to deal with disputes and potential divisions. The unity that had been displayed is now being challenged. Satan would have liked nothing more than seeing the apostles get bogged down in the smaller administrative matters of the church. He would have been perfectly happy to drown the apostles in the good stuff in order to keep them from the best stuff. And the apostles are now overseeing a church that is growing at an incredible rate. And with that growth came complications. How they dealt with those complications made all the difference. And the same could be said for we here in the 21st century. When we encounter issues confronting the church, we need to respond in a manner that does not betray our commitment to Jesus and certainly our commitment to each other. Jesus' prayer in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel reminds us that the world's ability to believe that Jesus is real and that he comes from God is directly proportional to how you and I interact with each other. He prays that we would be united just as he and the Father were one. The English theologian John Stott once remarked, quote, a church with internal conflict finds its message buried. We cannot proclaim the gospel of God's love with any degree of integrity if we don't exhibit it in our love for others. Nothing is so damaging to the cause of Christ as a church that is torn apart by jealousy, rivalry, slander, and malice, or preoccupied with its own selfish concerns, end quote. So any undercurrent of anger, bitterness, or pride, that's difficult to deal with, and quite frankly, it can sap the energy of the church. Now, as for the widows, the widows were an especially vulnerable group in those days. The early church took its responsibility to help support widows seriously. They were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures that would direct their actions. Consider Isaiah 1:17. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. Or Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor he who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Or Psalm 146, verse 9. 
The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Or Deuteronomy 27.19, that mentions a curse. That verse mentions a curse upon any who neglect the poor. It reads, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. In fact, Malachi 3 verse 5 reminded the Hebrews that judgment would be brought against any who oppressed the widow and the orphan. In fact, the New Testament reminds us of the very same thing. It is mandated that the local body, the community of believers, should pay special attention to the caring of widows. James 1.27 says, Visit the orphan and the widows in their affliction. And of course, 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 5, it reads, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. But a woman who is a true widow, one who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. Night and day she asks God for help, and she spends much time in prayer. Now, unlike today, there were no institutional means of support. There were no pensions, there was no social security, there was no life insurance, and there were few, if any, honorable jobs for widows. They were often left to fend for themselves. So the responsibility for those in that predicament rests first with their families, the very people whose lives are most closely linked to theirs. Paul, in his writing, is stressing the importance of each family caring for the needs of its widows and not leaving it for the church. Then the church can lend assistance to those widows who are truly alone and truly without families. So consider the plight of these complaining widows. There were some prejudices between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenist Jews that very likely carried over into the church. The Hellenists may have felt out of the loop, even disenfranchised, and there was a noticeable tension that existed between the two groups. The geographical and cultural factors cited earlier combined to create disagreement. And the bottom line was that the Greek-speaking Jews felt discriminated against in the Jerusalem church. And this may have been unintentional and not deliberate, possibly due to poor supervision or administration, but the enemy seizes upon those unintentional wrongs to cause a conflict. And the church, as mentioned earlier, was growing at a steady and rapid rate. So some degree of neglect may have resulted. Nevertheless, the effects of that neglect are being felt by the Hellenists. And they express that in the form of a complaint. The King James reading of Acts 6 states, quote, There arose a murmur against the Hebrews. Now, a murmur is described as a low and indistinct continuous sound or a mumbled expression of discontent. I think we've all done it at one point or another. We cover our mouth with our hand, we whisper something unintelligible to our neighbor, but that murmur soon festers, and it builds and eventually builds into a loud complaint that now rests or lands at the doorstep of the apostles. And the book of Exodus <clears throat> records a similar case of grumbling. If you recall in chapter 14, the people led by Moses had just come through the Red Sea, escaping the pursuing Egyptians. In chapter 15, they sing a song of deliverance. In chapter 16, that rejoicing soon turned into grumbling as there was just not enough food in the desert. It was scarce. And some of the Israelites expressed sentiment that at least in Egypt, we, quote, sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. 
That's Exodus 16, verse 3. And of course, the story continues by God raining down manna from heaven to meet his people's need. And we as God's people, we're also guilty of this. At one point or another, we may have engaged in carping or fault-finding. And in some cases, it's leveled against those who are legitimately attempting to address and correct a particular issue. And it could include any of the following comments, such as, you know, this is not a good approach. Or, it's not working the way I want it to. Or, it's not fixed yet. Oh, they don't care. Those type of comments are among the very things that God hates. Proverbs 6 details seven things that are considered an abomination to God. And that list includes haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and finally, one who sows discord among his brothers. We should exercise moderation when giving our opinion. Our interest should be focused on unity and ongoing development. So, we've heard from the widows. They've made a complaint. What is the apostles' response? Just how did they deal with this matter? Well, they handled it quite unlike what they intended to do in the feeding of the 5,000, if you recall that story in Matthew 14, after a long day of uh, preaching and teaching to the people, the apostles had approached Jesus. And they said, you know, it's getting late. This is a desolate place. You really need to send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and find food for themselves. And of course, Jesus' response was, no, you feed them. Jesus was challenging the apostles to take responsibility for others' needs. And Peter and the others that we see now here in Acts, they are totally different men from the ones we encountered in the Gospels. They have been transformed by God's power and his Holy Spirit, and they act in a determined, earnest, and decisive manner. And they may meet the issue head on. Now, before we look at how they tackled the problem, it's worth looking at what they did not do. For one thing, they did not ignore the problem. They didn't play like an ostrich and put their head in the sand and hope that everything would have passed by the time they lifted their head up. And by the way, that imagery about ostriches is absolutely incorrect. It's a myth. Ostriches do not put their head in the sand. Uh, what they do when they sense fear is they flop down and assimilate in with the local terrain. So that's completely a myth. That's uh, thanks to the Cleveland Zoological Society for that tidbit. <laughs> so they didn't ignore the problem, but the imagery is good for our sake for today. But they, and they didn't stop the daily distribution. They recognized, they knew it was important. And they did not chastise the widows with dismissive comments like, can't you see that we're busy? <clears throat> and they didn't form a committee and hold meetings to study the issue. And they certainly did not impose their will by adamantly stating, this is the way it must be. And they didn't solicit opinions by asking, what do you think we ought to do? Now, that last point about seeking opinions or soliciting opinions, that would seem to be contrary to what Proverbs 15, verse 22. This thing has fallen off, Charles. Is that okay? Okay. Um, <clears throat> Proverbs 15, verse 22 says, Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Now, while it is true that we need the help of those who can enlarge our vision and broaden our perspective, the matter that is confronting the apostles right now is urgent, and it required immediate attention, and they responded accordingly. The first thing they did was summon the full number of the disciples. 
Now, did that mean that the many thousands who had accepted Christ were all assembled in one place just to hear what the apostles had to say? Or was it a more representative, a smaller representative group of people such as principal leaders, men who were more conversant with the problem? Uh, And I tend to believe it was the latter of the two in light of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, which tells us that God is not a God of confusion or disorder. And consider what that could have looked like, considering the climate that they were in in Jerusalem, the antagonism that they were receiving from the religious leaders. If they had tried to get all of the people together in one place, it may have been difficult. And those principal leaders, if if in fact they were the ones who met with the disciples, they could then take the direction that they received from the apostles back to their respective congregations. And at this point, the apostles drew a line in the sand and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now there was then, and there still is today, an expectation that the leaders need to fix any problem that might arise. The apostles were acknowledging, yes, there is a problem. The ministry to the widows was a vital one, but it was going to be handled without any direct involvement from them. Now, there was a time when the apostles were more hands-on in the daily distribution. Acts 4, verse 35 tells us the proceeds of what was sold was laid at the apostles' feet. But that was then. This is now. The growth of the church has accelerated to the point where it would have been impractical and unrealistic for the apostles to be directly involved. They were not projecting a superior attitude or conveying a message that they considered themselves to be above such work. They were merely saying that we will not forsake our primary job. To do otherwise would have violated the mission that Jesus had called them to. They were going to remain faithful to their central calling, which was prayer and the ministry of the word. That, that was their bottom line. And as we will see, they were flexible about the process, but inflexible about their purpose. And the aforementioned John Stott, in regards to the apostles here in chapter 6, He was once quoted as saying, they were not at liberty to redirect their labors or to redefine their priority, end quote. And as for pastoral priorities, John Calvin once said, quote, God places no higher value on anything than the preaching of the gospel. The Lord wants his gospel to be proclaimed with such diligence that nothing can hinder its course. And the only way that men come to salvation is through the instruction of what the gospel teaches, end quote. So the apostles were doing exactly what Paul wrote almost 30 years later in encouraging the young Timothy as found in 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 to 15. It reads, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. End quote. In other words, give your complete attention to it. So, part one of the apostles' response was a declaration of what they considered to be important. Part two would be the apostles displaying tremendous wisdom in not falling into the temptation, the one that I think all of us have probably fallen into at one point or another, that temptation of, if you want a job done right, do it yourself. They conducted what I consider to be a masterclass in the often elusive art of delegation. Assigning responsibilities to others is not as easy as it might first appear. Factors such as pride and a lack of trust get in the way of recognizing 
that there are competent people who are more than capable of handling a particular task if only given the opportunity. And that was something I came to understand in my professional career after some early hiccups. I um, worked in the field of financial services for 43 years. I was a branch manager for a large subsidiary of Citigroup. And we were given support staff based on the size of the shop that we headed. And the work was demanding and productivity goals were very closely monitored. And inability to meet those goals on a consistent basis could lead to termination. And early on, I found myself <clears throat> interfering with junior staffers' attempts to do their jobs, often deflating their enthusiasm in the process. My mindset was dictated by the premise that I can do this better than them. Now, while that might have been true in some cases, it still was inappropriate behavior on my part. Part of a manager's job is assessing the strengths and weaknesses of those that you work with and then putting them in positions where they can best succeed, placing trust in their abilities and encouraging them along the way is a much more effective method of management in ultimately achieving the desired results. And eventually, I grasped that concept, and any recognition that I received as a manager was directly attributable to the work of the outstanding staffs I was privileged to lead. The book of Exodus provides a clear illustration of how delegation was not just recommended, but it was also accepted and implemented. And it involves Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. And we find that story in Exodus 18. I'm not going to read the account. Permit me to just summarize it. Jethro had come to visit Moses and his family. And one day he observed that uh, Moses was spending so much time hearing the people's uh, complaints and adjudicating their cases uh, that he was unable to get to other important work, such as teaching the people God's laws and precepts. So Jethro recommended that Moses find honest, God-fearing men and appoint them over groups of a 1,000, a 100, 50, and even as small as 10. So Moses accepted the advice and he assigned men to handle the ordinary cases. Anything more complicated would be brought to Moses. And these others would have then helped Moses in carrying the load. And by delegating well, it relieved Moses of any undue stress, and it helped establish a structure and organization that would guide them into the future. So proper delegation can multiply one's effectiveness while giving others a chance to grow. And the early church in Jerusalem, they were organized. They knew how many people were saved. They met together at specific places and times. Money, food, and goods were collected and distributed. Sin was confronted and dealt with. So there was some level of organization evident. However, with the unprecedented growth, came a need for even greater organization. And Peter and the others recognized this and acted accordingly by effectively using delegation, getting more people involved in ministry. D.L. Moody, he of the Moody Bible Institute, once said, quote, I would rather put a thousand men to the work than do the work of a thousand men, end quote. So the church's development demands delegation. There should never be evidence of one-man ministry. So being familiar with the scriptures, this story of Moses and Jethro may have motivated the apostles to proceed as they did. In verse 3, they address those that were assembled as brothers. Uh, that would seem to emphasize that this is a family issue and we're going to handle it as a family should. And they continued with, select from among you seven men. Now notice the words, among you. They were not looking for resumes from people from far off places. They weren't going to be using recruiting services. 
They were going to focus from within their own community, looking for men whose character and gifts could be observed on a daily basis. And as for the number seven, was there any significance to that? Maybe. Or it could have been nothing more than one man to be handling each day of the week. And they were to pick out seven, but not just any seven. Here the apostles provide a framework of qualifications. And with the input and communication of the people, they were to look for those who were of good reputation. In other words, free of scandal. And they needed to be men who were faithful and full of integrity. They needed to be men who were able, God-fearing, and men of truth or full of the Spirit. In addition, they needed to be wise, which would entail being discreet and judicious. And these men were to be both spiritually minded as well as practically minded. The apostles were more concerned with the internal quality of the men as opposed to any outward image. And the apostles' method of delegation, it's proactive and it allowed for interaction. Their direction was clear. If the search committee found qualified men who met these specifications, it would make it easier for them to appoint, for the apostles to appoint them. And the end of verse three indicates that a final decision or the final decision rested with the apostles. They asked for nominations to be submitted, men who the church family felt confident in, but ultimately they would have the final say. And then for the second time in a span of four verses, they announced that they would not deviate from their mission. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That was most important to them. Peter, for one, would have remembered the words of Jesus when he said, do you love me? Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Peter, along with the other 11, knew that a word-based ministry was the best way to serve the flock of God. Their words show how energetically they approach that task and how consuming it is to preach and pray rightly. And this proposal was received well by the people. Verse 5 says that it pleased the whole gathering. God confirmed the wisdom of the apostles through agreement among the people. The people, all of the people, were glad to put the matter behind them. And that speaks well of their faith and their faithfulness. There was no commitment to winning an argument or defending their actions. They genuinely wanted to do the right thing. Charles Spurgeon offered this in regards to the beginning of verse 5. Quote, Such unanimity I consider essential to church prosperity. If there be divisions amongst you, and one should say, I am for this, and another, I am for that, how can you expect that the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of peace, would be present and working among you? Where brotherly love continues and saints walk in holy unity, the witness they bear is powerful and the increase they gather is palpable, end quote. And then something remarkable occurs. Look carefully at the names of the men who were selected. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Look carefully. All of the names mentioned were Greek. They were from the Hellenist camp. The very ones who were most acutely affected were now being given the uh, opportunity of being entrusted with handling the problem. Consider that as one of the many momentous decisions that were made by the early church. The people showed great sensitivity to the offended group, and a potentially divisive issue was diffused. And what a wonderful display of humility and unity, and that should serve as a teachable moment for all of us. And of the seven men, only Philip and Stephen are mentioned prominently in the remaining portion of Acts. We really don't know anything of the others. Stephen was the church's first martyr. 
Not only was he a successful administrator, but a powerful and convincing speaker. His speech in the next chapter, chapter 7, was a catalyst that sparked intense persecution and spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And Philip became an important evangelist. In Acts chapter 8, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel in Samaria, performing signs and wonders. And he's the same Philip who proclaimed the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. So verse 6 informs us that they were now presented to the apostles who then prayed and laid their hands on them. And that practice is mentioned several times in the book of Acts. It was found in Acts chapter 8 concerning baptism, in Acts 9, where Saul, later to be called Paul, had his sight returned to him after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and once again in Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas were set apart for the work that God had for them. It symbolizes a conferring of responsibility and was a ratification by the apostles for the nominations that were made by the church. Now, it is widely assumed, correctly, that these men served as the first deacons in the church, even though the word deacon is not found in chapter 6. Most consider that they were the first to fulfill the office of deacon as described in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. The word deacon comes from the Greek diakonos, which means servant. Luke, in his writing of Acts, uses the verb for service, diakonio, not the noun, diakonos. And the passage concludes much like it began. The number of disciples multiplied as the word of God continued to increase, and a great many of the priests were converted. Now, these priests were very likely those from a lower echelon in the temple, not necessarily from the wealthier families such as the high priests. But this story, this story was a crucial moment in the young church's life. Luke knew about it, so he wrote it. The Spirit knew knew it, and it helped the apostles. And the danger of them being embroiled in any administrative matters, that was a real one. And had that happened, the proclamation of God's word could have been halted and would have certainly compromised the work. Thankfully, God's wisdom prevailed. And this story stands as a great example of growing pains for every generation of the church. When expansion occurs, the strains of growth can be felt by the entire church. Leaders and churches of all sizes must prepare themselves for the challenges that are coming or attached to growth. And there are some points that the church needs to be mindful of when dealing with growth issues. For one thing, expect distractions. The early church faced opposition and conflict that was orchestrated by Satan. It is almost inevitable that obstacles will be placed in a church's path. A church that wants to see spirit-fueled growth needs to know how to structure themselves so that the word of God can go on. Pastors and leaders must be given the time to concentrate on the word and prayer. Their focus needs to be on those main things. As we are often reminded, the gospel is of first importance. Second thing, organization can further the word. In order for discipleship and ministry and outreach to flourish, the structure cited earlier must be maintained. The early church adopted an organization that allowed for the spreading of the word to go on. Modern Bible-believing churches should do nothing less. Number three, be adaptable. By definition, a growing and fruitful church is a changing one. Churches are living organisms that age, mature, and grow. And they also need to adapt and develop over time in order to prepare for the changes that are likely to come. And since everything happening in the early church was so new, they didn't fall back on that tired and weak excuse, one I cannot stand to hear, and I'm sure you do too, 
that weak and tired excuse of, well, this is the way it's always been done. No, that what the people here in the early church in the book of Acts did, they blazed a new path when it became necessary. And the church then and now are better for it. And lastly, any form of adapting should never be done to cater to any specific group or a particular ideology. The preaching and teaching of God's word should never be sacrificed and must always be of paramount importance. Fourth, there are different roles in the body of Christ. A modern-day reader of verse 2 might take offense at the apostle's statement that it's not good for us to leave the word of God in order to serve tables. Who were these men who would refuse to engage in this type of a task? Are they above it all? Were they so self-important that they could not be bothered? The answer to those questions is an emphatic no. The apostles' application of Jesus' teaching about their roles was not that they were going to do everything, but to do those things that would lend to the greatest service in the body of Christ. Various gifts are to meet various needs. Our leaders who preach are not and should not be expected to do it all. We, all of us, should work together in our different positions for the betterment of all. And lastly, this is probably a redundant point, but the word is important to the work. Placing a priority on God's word leads to outstanding fruit. The apostles knew that the widow's complaint was legitimate. They were not minimizing it, but it wasn't pressing for them. It needed immediate attention, and it would be tended to, but not by them. And our pastors today should be given a wide berth to focus on the word and prayer. These men are not above picking up a shovel or picking up a broom, but quite frankly, they shouldn't have to. If all the members of the church were exercising their spiritual gifts and were devoted to the task of working together, then great things can be accomplished. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your unfailing love. Your word reminds us time and again of your faithfulness to your people. And we are also thankful for those who came before us, for the work they did in seeing that the gospel be spread. Your Holy Spirit empowered their commitment and dedication. And may we serve you in like manner. We are encouraged by what you accomplished through those early saints. And may we also be receptive to the urging of your spirit. Give us faithful and trusting hearts to do the work you have set before us. And as you guide us, let us be focused not just on those things that are good, but on those things that are best. And we commit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.